0: Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To
1: the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend. For justice will amend America. America. Welcome to another edition of Outside the Box. I am Jeff Nyquist, your host, and tonight I have two special guests Tom Fife, an American businessman and physicist, and Ann Leary, a conservative blogger from BackyardConservativeBlogspot.com. The thing that's interesting about these two stories is the way that they dovetail and work together and perhaps even make us afraid. Perhaps some of you remember uh, Whitaker Chambers, who was a communist back in the 1930s, who turned around and ended up coming before American authorities to expose Alger Hiss, former Assistant Secretary of State, as a communist agent. We now know also, because of other Soviet spies that turned against their network, that Harry Dexter White, the Secretary of the Treasury appointed by Harry Truman, was also involved in a spy network, two spy networks, actually, that were in Washington at the time. More than a half a century ago, they called it the Red Scare. You may remember the name Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism, Joseph McCarthy was a United States senator who said that communists were infiltrating the government. He held hearings, but on those, in those hearings, appearing on television, Senator McCarthy looked like a bully. And so it got a bad name looking for communists. But the communists, they were infiltrating the United States. They were subverting it because the business of communists is revolution. And what we have is a, a book named The Web of Subversion by James Burnham, which describes how this process works, James Burnham himself, a former communist. We now know in more recent times that the head of the CIA for watching this former Soviet Union, Aldrich Ames, was actually a Soviet agent himself. We know that Robert Hansen of the FBI, who was responsible for watching Russia for the FBI, was also a Soviet and then a Russian agent himself. The ability of the Russians to penetrate the most sensitive positions in enemy intelligence services and enemy governments is well documented in the history of the Cold War. And so I make this my introduction to show people that these things are not fantasy. These spy stories are not just make-believe, they're real. I will be back with my first guest, Tom Fife. And he is going to tell you a story about possible communist infiltration of the American political system. I will be back after these messages. You're listening to Outside
0: the Box with Jeff Nyquist. On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 I V G. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning.
1: Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want. But in partisan politics, there are rules. To Grossman Afternoons. Someone suspects an illegal immigrant, the cop is more afraid of arresting them than <laughs> of letting them go.
0: Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. Yeah, you're battling it. Yes, we're I like that. that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I Think that's more than reasonable? I certainly, you know, we're talking about... $12 million here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist.
1: Well, here we are on Outside the Box, and uh, I've got a very special guest a man, a businessman, a physicist, an American who has experience working in Moscow overseas. He had uh, Russian business associates, and he has a very interesting, illuminating story to tell. And I want to welcome uh, Tom Fife to the show. Tom, are you there? Yes, I am. Tom, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, business background. Now, you are uh, trained as a physicist, and you've worked with uh, with developing some of the technology on handheld devices, I understand.
2: Uh, particularly uh, programming for the uh for the early versions of the, uh, the pen computers. And you at one time got involved in a sort of a joint
1: venture project with Russians back in the early 1990s. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes. Well, it, uh, it grew out of a, um, an episode where I uh, met an Englishman who was doing, uh, relief work for the, uh, for the Russians back when, uh, it looked like the, uh, their society was about ready to collapse back in, what, uh, 91. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he talked me into going over there with him to help him and uh, in the process of doing all that work i got to know some of the uh, people who uh, were involved in the uh, russian academy of science and um these guys were all physics types too and so we had an affinity for you know for each other we uh common interests and everything and uh, they were a lot of programmers themselves, and they told us that they were very keen on trying to get a connection with some Western companies, and maybe doing some uh, joint ventures with them. And uh, that indeed is what we ended up doing.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, in early
2: '92 or so, well, the British guy had a consultancy uh, doing accounting, mm-hmm. and he, and he built up a uh, a uh, an umbrella corporation that was British, that that the. Uh, that the Russians and the, uh, our American group would be under. So we've
1: set the stage kind of what you're doing in Moscow in 92. Maybe you can describe a very uh, interesting experience you had. You were at a dinner party in Moscow?
2: Yes. Uh, we, had, we had been in Moscow, and we had been uh, working with these uh, people, getting everything organized. And it turns out that the, the Russians already had constructed this little company of their own that was within the Russian Academy of Sciences. And so we just had to hook into that, so to speak. And uh the head of that little company was a uh, physicist, and his wife. They were the the heads of the company. Were the people we actually worked with directly. Mm-hmm. And we were on our way back home. And as is pretty common tradition, that you know before you go back, you always have a little kind of a goodbye party. And and that's what this was. We were all gathered together. Some of the Russians and, and the uh, the Americans that were there. The British guy was there. And, uh, and we had this little party in the um, physicist and his wife's uh, apartment. their flat there.
1: And so you guys were eating and drinking and making toasts, I assume.
2: Yes, it's a, it's a Russian tradition to, to, to do these toasts. And the way they usually do it is they, uh, uh, they'll, they'll work around the table and, and, and everyone will have their turn. And they'll pour a little bit of vodka out. Then they'll, 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 they'll give the toast. Everyone uh, tosses it back and uh and then after a little bit more discussion then the next guy down the line will go ahead and propose a toast and they'll go along and and uh and we were doing that and we are eating our meal at the same time and mm-hmm. and just having a you know a general discussion it was just a light lighthearted thing
1: and so eventually somebody gives a toast that provokes an interesting <laughs>
2: Uh, more interesting kind
1: of discussion
2: or or a monologue, perhaps. Uh, It turned into a monologue, yes. Uh, My American friend that was there with me, uh, he, for whatever reason, didn't want to propose a toast. He just wanted to go ahead and say what he thought about things, about observations he had made about being in Russia. And uh, for some reason, he was uh, caught by the different racial types that he saw in Russia. I, I think he thought that they would be more homogeneous or something. But there is a... A little bit of variety in in Russian people mm-hmm. and 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 one of the things that he was noting was was uh high cheekbones in some of them, and so he was remarking about the influence of the Mongols and stuff like that and I think it was that point that the uh, the wife uh took a little bit of offense at and um I know that they're a little bit sensitive about the whole Mongol thing. You know, it's a uh, you know, they were subjugated for what, 400 years or something like that and it's not something they look at very fondly. But the whole thing that we're talking about here really it, it ends up being her response to that remark that uh that that she um wanted to correct him on what a true Russian is racially, and and she described uh, what she called a round Russian face, and and she was talking about uh, uh, where what villages you can go to, to to actually see the you know they see the perfect Russian, and, and and one of the funny things was it sounded like she was describing herself. Now
1: this is the wife of the head of the Russian company from the Academy of Science that you were working with. Correct. So she's responding sort of sensitively about this remark about Russians having Mongol features.
2: Yes. And, um, you know, she didn't get out of control like uh, loud, but 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 you could tell that she was miffed. And uh, she started to say things like uh, you you Americans should talk about race or something. Look at your relationships, race relationships back home. And uh, she was particularly talking about you know the the black problems we have you know the the, the riots and uh and then she said uh, well you you're going to be quite surprised because you're going to have a um, a black president very soon and uh, of course when she said something like that it kind of surprised because uh you know how would she know
1: yeah, how would she know? And, you know, it's interesting. Just I'm remembering you told me before off the air that that uh, this uh, a conversation occurred in February of 92. Uh, and I'm remembering that the uh, Los Angeles riots uh, happened uh, in relation to the Rodney King affair happened, I think, in January of 92, if I'm remembering right. Or maybe that was earlier in February 92. But it was about that same time.
2: I think you're right. There yeah. was, it was very, very close there. So
1: she's going on about you're going to have a black president. Mm-hmm. one day now we do have one now this is very curious so so what did she go on to say and did any of the russians there try to stop her from from going on this uh this uh
2: direction well the other russians in the room were were i would say subaltern to her and they just sat there and were writing it out
1: now when you say they were subaltern to her that
2: there was some kind of power that she had she was some kind of special person well what they told me was that she was a um uh, an apparatchik of some sort within a communist party. Uh-huh. And that uh, she was doing what they called climbing two ladders. I see. I, I got the impression that she was one of these people who would be in a uh, in a group and she would be the, the the party contact for them.
1: Now that's interesting because in February of 92, the communist party Soviet Union had been disbanded. Yeah. So that is very interesting. So they were kind of afraid of her or they kept their distance from her
2: yeah in general my observation was that uh, they didn't trust communists in general but they really didn't trust anybody that had been up the ladder at all Mm-hmm. sure they didn't like it at all
1: sure it's a it's a power of system and it was a dictatorship and and of course those people make you afraid because where there's power there's also people being killed and being pushed around and power is a terrifying thing
2: yeah, I, I heard all kinds of stories about the uh, different things that the uh, the party people would get do and get away with, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so they, they they were just they just sat there with their heads down, just like I said, just kind of waiting it out. And they, they didn't participate at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And from that point on, you know, where they had been talking a little bit before when she was talking and doing her thing here, uh, they, they were they were quiet. Now, what about her husband? Did he try to stop her? Uh, yeah, about the time that, that that she was saying this thing, uh, uh give this little revelation the way she did. Uh, he did step up and say, well, uh, I not really exactly how he put it, but he, he, he's, you know, trying to say, hey, what, how about, how about dropping this and we'll, we'll do something else or something. And, and, and she brushed him off and said, no, no, she wasn't done yet. She had something else to say. Hmm. And, and, uh, and so he, he just kind of, uh, Moved to the side, and and I and and he, actually he, he was the one also seemed like to be just waiting it out, just let her finish what she was going to say and forget about it.
1: Mm-hmm. So what was your explanation in her predicting that there was going to be a black president in the United States?
2: Well, the, the the next shoe that she dropped off of that was not only was he going to be black, but that he was going to be a, a communist, a, a Soviet, as she said. She called him a Soviet. Yeah, she called him a Soviet. Yeah,
1: well, that's quite remarkable. That that means not just that he's a communist with a small C, it means he's a communist with a big C.
2: That's what it would imply, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then she said, you know, she she made a comment about um, we had a chance to uh, vote for a uh, a woman for vice president. She said, but we didn't take it, and uh, and she was saying that that was one of the reasons that. Uh, that she knew that we we were still backwards in, in being enlightened and everything. Yeah,
1: and and of course she's referring to Geraldine Ferraro, who was the vice presidential candidate uh, with Walter Mondale in nineteen eighty
2: four. That, that's immediately what I was taking it to be. Yeah, yeah.
1: until this last election, where the Alaska governor uh, Sarah Palin was on. I think that was the only other female on a on a presidential ticket.
2: Yeah, at least a major ticket, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and and then. Uh, uh, I, I think I said something like, um, uh, "Well, you don't vote for vice president; you vote for the president." And uh, she just walked right over that, and, and she started talking about this guy that that, that uh, was going to be president. And, uh, and at first, you know, it was just this, this fact that we were going to have this black president. But then she started talking about him, and, and, and about the fact that, "Oh, this isn't idle talk," she said. "So this he exists; he's been groomed to be president." And, and, uh, he said, uh, he's been groomed to be irresistible and, and, and he will be president. And, um, and hmm. she's, and she said that, um, that he, um, had a, a, white mother and, and he had a, a black African father.
1: Hmm. And, and so she, she specifically identified the mother as a white American yes. and the
2: father as a black African. Yes and and she seemed to think that uh there was something magic in having a black african and not a black american as a father that that she thought that this was great because then he wouldn't have um any any slave baggage to go along with it
1: i see so in her russian mind not really understanding american politics she thought having ancestors who'd been in slavery would have been a handicap for someone running for the presidency
2: correct and I thought yeah, and I thought that was funny, uh, all said and done that that was one of the places he got a lot of static from I think American blacks that, that they felt like he had sidestepped the whole slave issue of somehow, and they, they didn't you know like he wasn't quite black enough or something. I remember there were there were jokes about that going around at the time.
1: so did she give a name for this uh black politician they were grooming to be president that she called a Soviet person
2: yes, and um, she she named him as being Barack. Hmm. And I uh, thought it was a strange name for, you know, for it to be coming up with an American president, that he'd had that name. Uh, but then uh, uh, I said, uh, from what I remember, it's, it's an Arabic word. It means blessing or something. And it's related to a lot of Hebrew, similar Hebrew words. I think like Baruch and things are all related right, words. Right, yes. And and I said that uh, I, I think it meant something like blessing or something. It had something to do with blessings or something. And she said, yes. He said, he is a blessing. And, and she said, "I remember she'd rather dramatically. This is one of the things points she got a little bit dramatic." And she said, that, "And he'll be a blessing for our world efforts, our, our, um, a blessing for communism, world communism." I think is what she said.
1: Hmm. So, did you find it strange that it was an Arab word that was the name of a of a supposed black president?
2: Yeah. It, it, at first, you know, it, later on, I was, you know, I, you know, you can see the connection. Where okay, if he a lot of a lot of blacks in Africa are, are Muslim. When I said arab she she corrected me she insisted it was African mm-hmm. and I thought, well, okay I'll let her go on that you know she, she she's convinced it's an African word, but i I, I knew that that was had an Arabic origin so she's she's gone so far as to name. did she provide
1: a, a last name for this future black president
2: yeah she was a bit a little bit muddled on that I think she knew it but didn't couldn't remember it quite correctly because she said maybe she was getting the country and his last name confused, is what she said. But but she said uh, that, that she thought it was Uganda. And, and I said uh, Uganda. Yeah, I was thinking Uganda. That, that's, you know, who'd be named after a country. But she didn't say Kenya, but, but she said Uganda. So I, I'm thinking that, that she got that confused with Obama. Mm-hmm. I think that she just didn't remember the name quite correctly and it, and maybe in her mind when she heard Obama she thought Uganda and and that's what stuck in her head maybe hmm. but 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 she did say definitely Barack hmm. and it was this 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 thing that sounded like Obama
1: interesting interesting I am Jeff Nyquist and with me is Tom Fife he's an American businessman and physicist who's worked in the computer field And he's been telling us about a dinner party in Moscow in February of 1992, where a Russian woman came up with this extraordinary statement that you are going to have a black president someday soon. And we will be back with more after these messages. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. Some radio stations are just noise and chatter. WIBG 1020 AM is radio with a passion and purpose. From early in the morning to Grossman Afternoons, Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays, and Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life.
1: All right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my guest, Tom Fife, an American businessman and physicist who has worked in Russia. And we're going to continue with his story, a very unusual story, about a dinner party in Moscow in February of 1992, where a Russian woman, who's uh, part of the communist structures in the former Soviet Union that apparently survived the collapse of the Soviet Union, got sort of miffed during a dinner party in the description of uh, a Mongol racial influence in the Russian population and came back with this well you Americans you have your racial problems and and then came up with this extraordinary statement that you are going to have a black president someday soon and of course actually describing a man who has a white mother an African father whose name is Barack who is a communist, she said, and described him as Soviet, which implies that he has some kind of relationship with Moscow. Yes. And, Tom, when you said that Barak means something like blessing in in Hebrew or Arabic, she came back with, yes, he will be a blessing to the communist global struggle, whatever.
2: That's exactly her sentiment.
1: Yeah. And it's extraordinary because... In 1992, Barack Obama was not even in politics yet. He wasn't introduced as the chosen successor for a state uh, Senate seat until 1995 when uh, Alice Palmer, who was, by the way, an admirer of the Soviet Union and very close to a lot of communists and, uh, and attended the 27th Communist Party Congress in the Soviet Union, announced Barack Obama as her successor. Interesting fact. And that announcement, by the way, was made in Bill Ayers' living room. Bill Ayers being a former Weather Underground terrorist who, one of his statements about his terrorism is, I am a communist. So this is very interesting and kind of scary that this communist lady in Moscow in 92 is aware of this guy that is not even going to be chosen yet for three years to stand for a state uh, Senate seat. Um, What else did she say about this future American president? Anything more specific,
2: yeah, she seemed to be very intent on on trying to drive home the idea that that this was a real person, and she knew about him and uh, uh, she didn't just go with the um, with a with name and, and you know mom and dad mm-hmm. At first she hemmed in the hall a little bit about trying to remember she, at first she thought Northwest and, and then she said, no, 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 he's from Hawaii. And and uh, and then, then she said that uh, he had been schooled uh, in the schools of the president. She said he's, he's Ivy League, is how she referred to it. Ivy League. Mm. And, and she said that that he uh, uh, was in uh, New York and Chicago and had gone to school in California. And she said that that he was currently in Chicago. That, that that's where he he was.
1: Interesting because Barack Obama attended Occidental. Uh, college in California, then Columbia in New York, and worked in New York, I believe, three years after graduating, and then moved to Chicago after that.
2: She also said that, that he was soon going to be entering politics, and it sounded like, it actually sounded like she was saying everything was, was under control. You know, like, uh, he's going to check all his boxes, and he'll climb the ladder and be president. Wow. Did she
1: Did she say anything about his his ever visiting the Soviet Union? Did you get the impression that he'd been to the Soviet Union?
2: You know, uh, she didn't. No, she didn't say about him being there. Uh, um, If she had, I wouldn't have been surprised by how much she knew. But uh, uh, she did not say that.
1: This is very interesting. I I think I mentioned it to you before when we were talking off air. But uh, Barack Obama's parents, you know, they met in a russian class that's how they met in in 1960 i believe was the year that they met and in that uh, class they were both taking russian in and hawaii and that's it is it is kind of funny you heard this from a russian and and barack obama exists because his parents were studying russian so tom how did it end how did she in this uh, this monologue she gave about this future black president how did she kind of uh, conclude how did it end
2: um let me see. She, um, it was a, a series of, like I said, a series of details that she was giving that, that, that would show that, that she knew this um, fellow. And, um, oh, the other thing that she said was that, um, that well, the way, way she put it was America was at the same time the big stumbling block for communism plus its biggest hope and, and, and that America had to be brought over for everything to work worldwide. And uh, and and so that that she said that, that that um that's why this had to take place. And and it was going to take place and I think that was one of the most frightening things about it was because it, it wasn't just a woman mouthing off. Uh she had this chilling uh certainty about it, assured self-assuredness about everything she said. That had Almost more power than than in in some respects in the words that she said it just a, she was just so certain and it was like foregone conclusion
1: and how did uh, how did you and the uh, the British man and the other american that were there how did how did you receive this uh information
2: um I, I think the other two guys received it a little bit more incredulously than I did. I uh, I, I think I was the one that was probably taken most aback by it for some reason. I I, I, I think uh, I was I felt chilled about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, uh, the the British guy particularly is, is the one that I had a little bit of a conversation with, and and he was he remarked that um, that you know that all your life you're growing up you hear about the. That everyone talked about communists and taking over the world and everything. And, and he said, he said, I'll be darned if I just sat here and I heard, I heard a communist say that they were going to take over the world. And, and that was, that was, that was his biggest remark about it. The, the fact that, uh, that she felt, or how I should say, she, she kind of felt a caricature a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but my, my American friend, he didn't, I don't remember him remarking anything about it. I, I it was, uh, the only conversation i remember after afterwards is really just between me and the uh the brit
1: hm huh. and uh it would be really fascinating if he could be gotten to talk about this now have you uh have you tried to talk to your british contact uh have you been able to get a hold of him
2: i've uh, i've been you know it's been near almost 20 years that that this took place and um and uh it's kind of a cold search but i i i have been getting some um, some help there, and and I uh, was able to to uh, at least a little bit have contact there with the British guy, and 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 he said he absolutely didn't want to have anything to do with this. He, he said he didn't want to talk about it, and he didn't want to be involved,
1: and so he didn't he didn't feel any responsibility to talk about it at all that uh, this had happened and that uh, it was. Uh, I mean, when you talked to him, did he remember the incident?
2: He, um well, I, actually, I don't think we had a chance to really get very much in that direction. I, I, I was trying to get him to, uh, maybe talk about it some. I mean, he didn't want to talk about it, really. And, uh, and he just said he didn't want any, anything to, you know, because I was saying that, could you just maybe give a little bit of color veracity to what I was saying? Because I, it, so far it was like, you know, just this one guy talking. And, uh, so
1: you you called him up and you said, hey, I've been on the radio. I've been talking about mm-hmm. this uh, what this Russian woman said at this party.
2: Yeah, and repeatedly people will always ask. who we said, well, you know, if we can get something else to lined up here that you know that, that it says the same thing, that be a little bit more strong story and everything. But uh, but but he uh, he definitely uh, left me knowing that he didn't want to be involved. So he was very quick to brush it off and to not want to. Uh,
1: yeah. I see. And what about the uh, other American that was there that kind of inspired the whole thing by talking about Mongols?
2: Um, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, we had this, this company together and, and the whole thing collapsed right afterwards. Uh, it was because of the, uh, the Russians that the whole thing collapsed.
1: And now that's interesting to me because I've interviewed other businessmen who've had dealings in Russia. And the one theme that comes out is that The Americans or the the British or the Swedes or whoever it is, they have this big investment in Russia. Uh, They have Russian partners. And what invariably happens is that the Americans or the Swedes or the British lose their money and the Russian partners end up with everything. Is that kind of what happened to you?
2: Yeah, there was a um, group of Russians that we were with. And then this other group, to me, they came out of the blue. And I I just was not involved in the whole process of the uh, organizational side of things. I I was much more on a technical side. And and I was uh, involved with, with doing the technical things, and my, uh, the other people were involved with the with the business side. And somehow they brought in this other guy, who was a Russian. He was with the University of Moscow. And uh, and it was through him, or it was actually to him and around him that everything started to uh, to aggregate, and and he ended up in, in control. And I'm not sure all of what what, what went on, but uh, that's what in the end happened.
1: Hmm. Interesting. And uh, so the party wrapped up. She'd made these statements. And what, what interested me and what I think the listeners are wondering is, okay, you heard this very strange story. It kind of spooked you at the time. Um, how long was it before you realized that this Barack person you'd heard about, this black American politician, was a real person and that you could see him on TV or read about him or notice that he was actually there?
2: Yeah, well, of course, when uh, when I went home, I uh, at the time I had an active security clearance. Oh, and I um, because you were you
1: were a defense contractor of some kind.
2: Yes, I was involved in another company that that had um, a uh, active security clearance going, and so whenever I went to to Russia, when I got back, I had to be debriefed by the um, Defense Intelligence Agency, the mm-hmm. DIA, right, and and, uh, and and an agent would come and schedule a time, and, and we would. Uh, chat and basically, uh, before I, uh, would go over, he had said that, uh, he wanted to make sure that I would make note of anybody that, uh, I might meet, particularly ones that wanted to be friendly with me, things like that. And, and so, uh, I did that. And so I kept a little diary of, of, of what went on when I was over there. And mm-hmm. I did make notes of this conversation because it, it did strike me so strongly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did, uh, go and, and I was debriefed with the guy when I got back, and uh, ended up giving him the the, you know, the little notes I had made on that evening when I got home. Mm-hmm. But you know, this was a very vivid thing. It was in my head. Matter of fact, it was actually so vivid that when I got home, one thing I did do is that I told my son, who was I, I you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, something at the time. I, I, I mentioned to him that uh, I said, I said, you know, if if I'm not around in the future sometime. And you hear about a guy, this guy who wants to be president. He's half white and half black. And and uh, I, I said, you, you got to fight this guy because there's. I I I just told him enough. I, I said he's he's going to be no good. And and one interesting thing, of course, is that my son remembers that conversation we had. Mm-hmm. That's one that's one point of reality that's very vivid with him. And, 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 and he says that's one thing that, 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 that he, he remembers very well because I guess it kind of affected him that I pulled him aside and I felt something strong enough to tell him that. And, and, uh, that stuck with him. Now, of course with, with me in the meantime, uh, it was just a story for, for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't see this, this guy, you know, sticking his head up anywhere. And so it just kind of, you know, stuck in the back of my mind. Every once in a while, I'd think about it. I remember it. You know, something would remind me of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, an interesting thing that, that, that did cause it to pop up in my head a, a couple times since then, when, when she was describing him uh, back in, in, at the dinner, and she said that he was uh, half white and half black, she stopped and said, that's right, he's a chocolate baby and And I thought that was such a queer thing to say i, I you know i I just didn't think of uh, uh you know it's not in my vocabulary and I have heard people refer to uh a lot of this talk about babies every once in a while, but mm-hmm. uh it was an odd turn of phrase for me and and i heard I've heard that maybe a couple of times since, and when I did hear that, I immediately remembered this this woman saying that you know
1: yeah it it's a kind of unusual thing to say.
2: Yeah, so it, it stuck in my head, and, and it has been a trigger a couple of times for me to start thinking about it again. But uh, I, what really did it was, of course, when uh, I saw him at the, uh, the Democratic uh, National Convention there, when he gave that that, that famous speech of his. Um,
1: in 2004.
2: Yeah. I, I, is that the purple speech they keep on talking about, where we're, we aren't red or blue anymore or purple or something? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I... I... I I think so. Yeah, because in 2000 he didn't have any uh, or any previous Democratic convention. He didn't have any uh, platform at all.
2: Yeah, but even there it didn't register exactly with me because the only thing I knew then was okay, here's a black guy, his name is Barack, and that that did get my attention. And and uh, it was afterwards that I started hearing people talk about uh, all you know they were praising him. I, I, I I. I actually, was kind of surprised at how how overflowing with lauding they were doing that they were just they just couldn't uh, stop to praise him enough and and then they um they were talking about how he was a, a presidential hopeful perhaps you know and blah you know all that type of stuff mm-hmm. and, and then it was later, not long after that I started seeing little bio kind of clips on him and and and, and the one it did of course is the very second they said that he, they talked about him having a white mother. And, and a father from Kenya that just like, Oh man, it was, it was like, uh, it, you know, if I'm talking about something snapping, you know, and just hitting you in the head, uh, that's what it felt like. It's, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is, you know, it, it, it was a story. All of a sudden it didn't seem like a story anymore. I, I could, it was felt like, gosh, I'm right in the middle of something real. And, and, uh, And it uh, it really struck me. And, you know, after that, I started Googling things about him and and, and everything meshes. I mean, everything she said connects with the reality of of this guy.
1: Well, you must have had quite a shock then to realize this person was real and that they were considered to be presidential timber.
2: Yeah. And and, uh, at at first it was still kind of like I was kind of like simmering on the back burner about this thing. And um, I, I have to admit I had an anxious feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like, how, how can I say to anybody what's going on? And so I started saying, you know, I'd be with some friends and, and I'd go and say, hey, you know, I got to tell you this story I got. And, uh, they'd half believe me and they'd half wonder if I was making this stuff up or something. Mm-hmm. I, I think the problem is it was enough after the fact that, that, that it, it wasn't like I was predicting that much mm-hmm. at that point in time. So.
1: No. Now you're talking about when he started to announce for president and run in the primaries.
2: That's when I I, I said I, I just dropped everything. And I said I got to get something, uh, get this word out. When, when I could see that he really was moving towards the uh, the nomination, mm-hmm. that, that's that's when I, I really started.
1: So that was what April or March or April of two thousand
2: eight. It was yeah spring of eight eight oh eight, yeah and so what did you do did you
1: write to newspapers did you call radio shows you did you notify tv stations what
2: how did you approach it i wrote emails to everybody you can think of all the big names all the local names i wrote emails to them uh wrote wrote paper letters to them
1: mhm and did you get any responses uh
2: no. <laughs> wow. Uh, no. I, no, I, I really...
1: no interest at all. And well, in these letters or emails, you'd write to them. How would you? Was it a teaser? Did you tell the whole story? What uh, What did you do in these letters? Well, the,
2: when I started off, see, I I don't know why, but I, I I didn't want to just start broadcasting it out total cloth. I don't know why I did I didn't, or maybe if it's good or bad, one way or the other. But I I didn't, and I the first. The first bevy of letters were saying, I I got something that I want to, uh, to tell you and it's very important. It's about, uh, Barack Obama and, and, uh, and, uh, and, um, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what I said. Maybe it was about a, a, uh, uh, his background or something and, and no one seemed to, to care or, you know, maybe, maybe they, they were just flooded with letters like that. Uh, maybe there's enough people out there who, Had their own little versions of something or something. I don't know. But I got no response at all. What actually got something going, finally, was a friend of mine has this uh, rather large um, email list, uh, a political-oriented one, conservative, political-oriented. And I wrote up a little paragraph. And it's a paragraph I have out on a website right now. Not a paragraph, but it's, a, it's the little story that I have, kind of like what I just related. And I have it out there on, on, on the Internet. And it was that text then that I was able to get onto her mailing list. And and uh, I did get a little bit of response from that. And and, and eventually it got down to um, Wiley Drake. And he asked me to come on a show but I couldn't get on until actually, um, election day, mid-election day, when that little thing took place. And then from, from him, there was a, uh, interview with, a, a, a lady at World Net Daily, Janet Folger. She quoted my, 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 thing I had out on the internet. And after that, there was a lot of email to me and people were asking questions and, and actually a lot of people were starting to reinforce. They say, oh, you know, that, that I, uh, I was involved in this, that and the other and, uh, Here's an example of one of the letters I got. I I mentioned in in, in the the write-up I had that one of the things that she said was that um, the three important cities in America for them was New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. She was talking like San Francisco was of some particular importance, and I didn't understand Mm -hmm. what she was saying. Whatever she was saying just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I mentioned just that much in, in the uh, write-up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got an email then from, from someone who said, uh, I know what she's talking about. It was the uh, the Gorbachev Institute that was started at the Presidio. And I got an email then from, from a lady who said that she was hired by them to write some programming for them. And that's what she thought it was, this uh, Gorbachev thing.
1: So, Tom, uh, tell me um, about your uh, – you say you have a website. Uh, let's uh, give out the uh, web address so that people, listeners, can go visit it and uh, maybe read what you have on there.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a website that my, my son put together for me, and it's uh, www.americantownmeeting.com. And it's just just all run together as one word, American town. American town.
1: And, well, I want to thank you, Tom. You're very brave for coming forward with this story. And uh, I know those who disbelieve you will say you're very evil for coming forward with this story, but you're certainly brave. And, um, you know, when I first heard this story, uh, heard about this story, I thought, oh, it has to be a hoax. And then I heard you interviewed, and I thought twice, and I have a uh, Ukrainian friend who listened with me. And he, uh, to his mind, your details were so authentic to him, being someone who lived the first half of his life in the Soviet Union, that, uh, that he said this has to be true. And that's, that's, uh, that's his uh, view on it. So I, I thought I had to have you on the show, and I had to interview you. I thought it's important to add this to the public record so that people can think about it uh, because it's a testimony of, of a witness. The listeners can determine the credibility of the witness. That's their responsibility. But I think that the witness has come forward and we need to listen to the witness. Uh, so I want to uh, thank you for coming on the show.
2: I want to thank you very much for having me. It, it's it's something that I, I think if you, know, if you put yourself in my shoes, I, I have to come forward. Uh, I, I can't imagine waking up at some future time, not having come forward, at least try to get it across uh, and, and to, and, and to see what maybe had happened to the country and everything. And, and I had been quiet, you know, silent and the whole thing. I have to come forward. And that's the way, that's yeah. the way it's, I just have to.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, thank you, Tom, Tom Fife, uh, for being with us on the show today. And I've got another guest after the break, With more on Barack Obama's background.
0: You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Deinquist. WIBG 1020. Live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All
1: right,
2: it was one
1: time kick they blew it, but the Vikings right right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We
0: are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere.
1: I'm Jeff Nyquist. We're back. It's outside the box. And with me in this segment is a conservative blogger of backyardconservative.com. And com. N- ah, okay. Backyard conservative. Okay. Well, it's Anne Leary. And say it again. It's
3: backyardconservative.blogspot.com.
1: okay But you
3: can just search it and you'll find it. If you just search for Backyard Conservative it'll come up.
1: And it's a very interesting blog and it's... uh, Anne is very uh, politically active at the local level I take it. And...
3: Well, not so much now, but I used to be quite a bit more. Now I just blog. <laughs> now you
1: just blog, and uh, so a- anyway, and you've you've made some uh, a little bit of news lately among the conservative bloggers, and I, I was forwarded a piece, an interview done with you by American Thinker, about an encounter that you had with the infamous Bill Ayers in the Ronald Reagan Airport in Washington uh, some time ago. Could you maybe tell our listeners about that?
3: Sure. Yeah, it was about a week ago Monday and it was in the morning and I was headed back from Chicago. I'd been there for a, a meeting and and I I look up. I was having a coffee at Starbucks before I went through security and I look up and I see this kind of scruffy faced guy who, you know, he looked a little older and he had a backpack and I thought, Well, this is not your normal, you know, sixty plus year old and I looked at him and he got closer and then I saw he had an earring in his ear, and I thought, that's Bill Ayers. So, I mean, I've been tracking him for, a, I mean, uh, you know, his videos and things that he said, because he's from Chicago, and he's a good friend of Barack Obama, even though the president denies it, essentially. So I thought, I'm going to get a picture of him and and find out where he's speaking. So I grabbed my BlackBerry, and I had to delete a, a picture of it, because I, I had you know tourist pictures on there <laughs> so i'm like okay and i had one shot and i followed him uh, uh and i thought okay i'm gonna go past him and i did i turned around planted myself took the picture and then i said what are you doing in dc mr ayers and uh just as i uh, took the picture he turned so i was really lucky i got a fa his face a pretty good uh, shot, so everybody could see it was Bill Ayers, you know, seeing the picture, mm-hmm. and and he, you know, he gave me kind of an uneasy smile. Then when he realized that he, I was taking his picture, but after that he didn't smile at all. And uh, I just asked him. He told me he was speaking at an education conference, and and so I asked him where, because I was kind of fishing a little bit. Okay, I thought, okay. I'll just kind of play along with this for a little bit. And then I think he was trying to decide if I was a fan or not or something. So he says, "Well, that's what I do. Education I'm speaking at and this Renaissance uh lecture." And then he says, "You shouldn't believe everything you hear about me. You you know nothing about me." Well, that got me kind of mad cuz uh, I mean, he is an unrepentant domestic terrorist and he's so, I just said, "Well, I know plenty. I'm from Chicago. I'm a conservative blogger, and I'm going to post this. Well, then I thought, for sure he would just go off. you know why would <laughs> yeah. would be aggravated and and go But he didn't. He stood there, and I could see kind of the wheels turning in his head and and then he he looked me straight in the eye. And, he, you know, no snark, no sarcasm, no jokey stuff. He looked at me and he said, I wrote dreams from my father. And I said, huh? I said, so you admit it? I mean, I just like, what?
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, just to explain to the listeners, Dreams of My Father is Barack Obama's first autobiographical book.
3: Right, right. This is like his myth maker book. That, that show, you know, people voted for him, some just on the strength of the lyrical, you know poetry of this autobiography about you know, his father and his upbringing and and uh, so this is like a core to barack obama's uh, his his mystique as you know, being this wonderful uh, American dream kind of person. Right. So so I was pretty incredulous. I mean, anyway, I, I said, oh, so you admit it, because obviously there have been rumors about this for some time. But anyway, then he said to me, Michelle asked me to. And I just, I'm thinking, wow, that is really a stunner, because he's bringing Michelle into this. He's upping the ante. And, but then I thought, well, this is Bill Ayers. You know, he dances on the flag. He dances around the truth. So, you know, I just kind of looked at him, and then he went on to say, oh, and if you can prove it, we can split the royalties. So I said, oh, well, fine. I said, oh, stop pulling my leg. So I thought then he would leave. He had his little fun. But no, he came again. And this time he's looking really serious. It's like almost like he's pleading with me. And he says, I really wrote it. The wording was similar. And so then I said, well, I believe you probably heavily edited it. And then he said, for the third time, I wrote it. And then I got mad, because I thought, well, he can prove if he wrote it, wrote it or not. I mean, this was written years ago, and he hasn't said it up until now, and he's gone along with this whole charade that, you know, Obama, you know, it's his work of his life to write this book. So I said, why would I believe you? You're a liar.
1: <laughs> well, <then> he's like, <laughs> and he's a revolutionary communist to boot.
3: Oh, yeah, a small C communist. I mean, he's a bomber. He's a domestic terrorist. Yeah, but he can't say, you know, come out and say a lot of this stuff, even in the books that he claims he's written, because there's no statute of limitations on murder. I mean, there's still some cases that are open. Yeah. So after I called him a liar, then I, he finally realized that he couldn't say much more to me. <laughs> so then he walked off, but he, he just kind of tossed over his shoulder. Well, and if you can prove it, we'll split the royalty. So, you know, the way I, I figure it, I think he wanted to get this out there, but he wants plausible deniability. I mean, it's my word against his, but... Right, you know he said it. I reported it just as he said it. As he wanted to I get I it off it his count.
1: chest to somebody, but he wanted it to be deniable,
3: right, right, but then it's kind of interesting because you know initially people are like questioning the you know my veracity that i that I so that supposedly I would make this whole thing up. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. Why would I do that? I mean, <laughs> I'm not putting my credibility on the line for bill ayers but <laughs> but then, uh. Uh there uh, you know I think that National Review um, found something where the National Journal which is the Charlie Cook Inside the Beltway publication had had they've been at some kind of one of these lectures and they actually asked Bill Ayers if he wrote the book a week or two ago and and he kind of jokily said oh yeah you can quote me I wrote it I met with the president three or four times and then I wrote the book ha 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 and they kind of took it ha 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 well that, that never went anywhere. Nobody ever heard that he said that. I mean, they put it in on one of their little blogs and it was kind of a, you had to pay to read it, so it just never went anywhere. And of course, everybody thought it's all jokey jokey. So I think what he's doing, you know, obviously there was no buzz there. He must want this out. Hmm. He must want this out. He uh, I think he saw his opportunity and he took it. And even if you know, not many people have heard of my blog. I'm, or, you know, of course, he didn't know me from Adam. I'm still sure that he thought, you know, the way the Internet would go and given his notoriety, that it would make a buzz. And I think further, the reason, when I think he want, decided to tell me because I was a conservative blogger. And he figured it would get around. And I, you know, actually... It didn't just go around the conservative blogosphere. I think this was in his calculation. The only way the mainstream media would pay attention to it is if it did go around the conservative blogosphere, because you know they would, he would, he would have plausible deniability, and they would want to debunk it. And, but it would still get out there. It would still get buzz. And mm-hmm. and you know, so people, have, would, and,
1: people would and, and be left to wonder the, whether he did or not. I'm sorry. So people would be left to wonder whether he wrote it or not.
3: Right, and you know, I mean, it wasn't just a question of yanking the conservative blogger's chain. He's yanking President Obama's chain. <laughs> <You> no,
1: <know, laughs> yeah, he's that's like
3: true. he's upping the ante. He brings Michelle in there, and you know, in fact, the this I got I got like thirty thousand some hits on this thing, and it went up onto the top of the memorandum, which is the kind of the buzz. It's it's more liberal biased buzz to the point where the New York Times caucus blog called me a stalker. They felt like they had to attack me. (laughs) You know, Bill Ayers is the victim here, of course. You know. Oh,
1: man. Ann Leary, stalker, (laughs) blogger.
3: Yeah. So, anyway, uh, I think people pretty much believe that I I went down the way I said because, uh, you there's no way I'm a stalker. I only met the guy the first time and it was clear in the, what I posted that I was very skeptical and uh, I said I was. So, people can make up their own minds, but it's clear to me that he wants this out there. And in fact, after all said and done, he actually, actually I actually do think he wrote it, but I don't think he'll admit it anytime soon.
1: Mm-hmm interesting no. and leary of a backyard conservative blogspot.com right am i saying that right yes.
3: yes very good thank
1: you all right well thank you for being with us i will be back after these messages
0: you're listening to outside the box with jeff nyquist at 10 20 a.m. or WIBG.com we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular WIBG 1020 we're everywhere
1: well ladies and gentlemen you've heard a couple of interesting stories from witnesses and I would like to conclude by quoting Bill Ayers himself. Bill Ayers, the self-declared communist and uh, communist revolutionary, I should say, and former member of the Weather Underground Organization, a terrorist organization from the 1960s and 70s. This is what Bill Ayers said at an education conference in Venezuela recently. He said, This is my fourth visit to Venezuela each time at the invitation of my comrade and friend, Luis Benilla, a brilliant educator and inspired fighter for justice. Luis has taught me a great deal about the Bolivarian Revolution and about the profound educational reforms underway here in Venezuela under the leadership of President Chavez. We share the belief that education is the motor force of revolution, and I've come to appreciate Luis as a major asset in both the Venezuelan and the international struggle. I look forward to seeing how he and all of you continue to overcome the failings of capitalist education as you seek to create something truly new and deeply humane. Again, that's Bill Ayers, who in 1969 declared, We are revolutionary communists. Bill Ayers, the friend of our president, Barack Obama. Bill Ayers... Well, Bill Ayers. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. I hope you will visit my website at jrnyquist.com, or you can go to strategiccrisis.com, all one word, strategiccrisis.com. There you'll find videos and uh, other information. And I hope you will join me, Jeff Nyquist, your host, on another Outside the Box next week at the same time. Until then, God bless.
0: You were listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist.